This is a Triple J podcast. Hello, it's Lucy Smith here, back with another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. In this episode, we chat robotic noses and sympathetic smells, sunburn in space, and why is getting out of bed so hard? You might be feeling this if it's cold where you are. We also talk sniffly noses as well. Anyway, plenty to get into. Let's do it. Carl? We chat science, but there's been some kind of developments in the world of sport. What's going on? Yeah, uh, because sport is an incredibly important part of life. You know, the Greeks got it right when they said, or the, the Romans, a healthy mind in a healthy body. So if you spend all your time thinking, spend some time with your body. Okay, the world's highest paid female athletes per year, beginning with Naomi Osaka at $50 million and Serena Williams at 41. So the people mainly do tennis and there's a little bit of athletics. So the top 10 most highly paid female athletes, 2022, range from $50 million down to $10 million. Now, you're kind of guessing that the males would earn more and they do. Um, so the top 10 athletes... Start with Ronaldo at $136 million a year. And many of them are in soccer, a bit in boxing. And they go from 136 to $100 million through the patriarchy. But nothing compared to the most highly paid athlete ever. And it's hard to kind of work it out. But Peter Strzok, a professor of classics at Pennsylvania University, worked it out. A Roman charioteer. So you're thinking 2,000 years ago and kind of like Ben-Hur and driving your chariots around the inside of the Colosseum. And Gaius Apuleius Diocles, who was a Spaniard, out of 4,300 races, chariots, won 1,500. Survived for 24 years at the top, and the amount of money he earned in that time was, in today's money, $15 billion. What? And oh you got to ask, God. what did you spend it on in, in Rome? Like you couldn't buy a fancy electronic device or a, a stupid watch that's really big and made with diamonds. What would you do with $15 billion back then? That I mean, is insane. Wait, so when you say 24 years at the top, you meant they were competing for 24 years. He that... survived? Yeah. Oh, like, my God, that's a good innings. Yeah, that's amazingly long. Do you remember, you know that uh, chocolatey drink called Milo? Yes. And you know how today it's got a picture of a tennis person on the front? Back in the day, it used to have a guy who was a wrestler with, in, he looked like an inverted pyramid, you know, like a skinny waist and huge shoulders. And there actually was a Milo person. And he was a Greek wrestler. Back in the day when they were wrestling, the race, the, 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 the bout ended up with one person dying every time. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's how it went. And he didn't die. So what happened was an amazing coincidence. When he started training as in maybe 10, 11, 12-year-old boy, don't know, um, he was just beginning on his puberty spike. And the hormones were just beginning to come through. And amazing, just where he was training, a cow gave birth to a calf. And just for fun, he picked up the calf. I mean, he wasn't being mean to it and, and ran around the stadium with it. And it wasn't that heavy and it was hard work, but he did it. And he kept on doing it every day. And as the calf grew heavier and turned into some sort of adult cow steer thingy, he carried it every day. 
And so the statues show him carrying this enormous bull on his shoulders, and he never died. He's, he, he survived into his 60s, 70s. He never died. So occasionally in those days, you could survive. And Gaius Diocles, he actually survived at the top for 24 years. Oh, my gosh. Wait, so how did you find this out? Where did this all come from? Well, of course, I read motoring magazines and <laughs> for some unknown reason, they were talking, this is Tony Davis and this is uh, going back uh, to 2010 and he was talking about the money that the Formula One drivers were asking. I, I love reading the motoring journalists because they're real larrikins and basically what they do is they get a brand new car from the manufacturer and they try to turn to turn it back not damaged, but not the same anymore. And I heard one of the company executives complaining about the journalists. They say they brought the back car back over uh, after only three years and it wasn't the same anymore. It was all loose and floppy. And the journalist said, that's because you built a crap car, mate. <laughs> he really hammered it. Yeah. Dr. Max, you're kicking us off. What do you want to know? Uh, hey, Dr. Carl. I was just wondering, so a scuba tank that's full of air and one that's empty of air, they obviously float quite well, but would the one that's full of air float better than the one that's empty? Yes and no, depending on what the surrounding circumstances are. So believe it or not, air has mass, uh, and, and some people find this hard to believe unless you've sort of done physics, and it, you know, it kind of makes sense. So think about a cubic metre of water... Well, if you get a cubic metre of water, then you put on the scales, it'll register at 1,000 kilograms. About a ton, yeah. Okay. Now, suppose you've got this perspex box and then you, you know, equilibrate your scales to counteract that to zero and then you have it empty and then you put air into it. You, you weigh 1.25, 1, 1, 1 and a quarter kilograms roughly. So air has weight, but then there's buoyancy around it that lifts it up. This is a whole um, Archimedes thing. Now, imagine that you've got a big fat lump of wood, a railway sleeper, and it weighs 200 kilograms, and you try and shift it, mate. You push and you push. You can barely move it, if at all. But if you put it on water, it floats. It doesn't sink to the bottom of the ocean. So the ocean is providing buoyancy because the ocean is so much denser than the air. So getting back to the weight of our kilogram, our cubic metre of water, it's actually 1,000 kilograms minus the buoyancy that the air provides, which is one and a quarter kilograms, because weight is different from mass. Ma weight depends on local factors like your gravitational field and your buoyancy. So if you've got a tank that is absolutely empty of air, it'll weigh a certain amount. You just let the air flow in, it'll yeah, weigh a couple of grams more. And then you start pumping more air in. The air is made of molecules of oxygen and nitrogen. They have mass and then it gets heavier. Is okay. that kind of helping a bit? Yeah, sort of. But I was also wondering, like, a boat. <laughs> yep. A boat which obviously has no pressure in it and it doesn't even have a top on it and that still quite flights, floats quite well. Ah, okay. Now, that is really deep. Now, Archimedes was incredibly clever way back 2,000 years ago. And he was given a problem of how to work out whether a crown that had been made for some king was actually made entirely of gold or had a bit of lead mixed in it. And he uh. couldn't work it out. He had to try. And, and suddenly one day there was a bathtub that was absolutely full of water. This is how the story goes. And it was absolutely full of water. And... He put his foot in and a little bit of water flowed out. 
and then he kept on putting more and more of himself into the water, then very gently put himself in the bathtub, and he's floating, and then he realised that the weight of the water that had tipped over the edge was equal to his body weight. weight. Yeah, now that's really clever. And then he suddenly realised, I can use this to work out the volume and and separately the mass of the crown and then work out whether the king's been robbed. And then apparently the story goes, he ran down the street shouting out Eureka, which literally means I have found it. And (laughs) because back then they were into nudity, apparently he didn't wear a towel. So, so he was with, naked he, running down the street. Yeah. So imagine you've got a block of metal, of, of iron, and it's just solid, and it weighs five times as much per unit as water. You put it in a, in a bowl of water, it just sinks. Now get a hammer and beat it out into a bowl. It weighs still the same, but now when it goes into water, instead of displacing just a tiny amount of water, it displaces all of that volume, and the amount of water it will push out over the edge is equal to its own weight, and that's how it floats. Ah. Oh, that's interesting. That's cool. Yeah, there's some YouTube videos. I'm sure that Derek Mueller on Veritasium has done one, and also YouTube is a wonderful resource (laughs) for that too. Okay, cool. Great. Thanks, Max. we got Jack and Nick in Wagga. Jack and Nick, what do you want to know? Uh, Hey, Dr. Carl. Uh, Me and my mate Nick, uh, we just went to move an air compressor, and we're just wondering, um, does it weigh more with air in it, like when it's full, or does it weigh less or the same? Oh, my God, the universe has collided that all the questions are talking about the weight of air. I pretty similar uh, to the other one. Yeah. Simple answer. So following on from what was just said, an amazing coincidence. Yes, it weighs more. And, and this is hard. At one stage, we had an Australian Prime Minister say that carbon dioxide is a weightless gas. So it just shows how you'd think they would have had better advisors. So it, it will weigh more with the air in it. And thank you so much, um, Dr. Jack, for that wonderful question to re- simply repeat what we went before. Okay, thank you. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Bye. We've got Spencer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we got Spencer in Brisbane. Hey, Spencer. Spencer. You've been hey, having doctors. some trouble. What's going on? Trouble. Uh, I was wondering about uh, two cylinders of air, right? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> oh, my God. I was going to say my expense three in a row too much. Don't Here, do on, this man. to me. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I was actually wondering about um, why it's so hard to wake up in the morning. Mm. Is Why is it so difficult to get out of bed? Okay. Um, is it okay if I ask you how old you are? How old are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm 20. Right. What time at night do you get tired? Um, about 10, I'd say. Yeah. Now, you are in you, you are a special sort of human. We're all special and we love you very much, blah, 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 blah. But in your case, um, what's happening is that you're in between puberty and early to mid-20s and your yeah. sleep patterns are different. When you're born as a baby, you know, 10, 18 hours, whatever, and then as you get closer to puberty, your sleep patterns align more with your parents. So at a sensible time, like 8 o'clock at night, you're heading for bed. Okay, just kidding a bit, but okay, right? And then (laughs) once you hit puberty, two things happen with regard to the hormone that's involved with sleep called melatonin. Firstly, you make it later. Instead of making it in bigger numbers around 7, 8 o'clock, you're making it around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. And I remember as a kid, and I remember studying as a student when I was at your age, I would be in bed at night at 11 o'clock at night and I wanted to go to sleep and I couldn't. 
and then I wake. And the second thing is that you, you don't feel tired till late. But the second thing is, right now you need ten hours sleep. So if uh, when you get past the mid twenties or before you hit puberty, eight hours. Right now you need ten hours sleep. So the answer to your question, I'm sorry to say, Doctor Spencer, is that you're sleep deprived because of our society. It's all society's fault. You need to have a job where you can start later after a healthy ten hours sleep. And it's not your fault that you don't f- feel tired till later. It's just uh, handy, maybe in the old days, from an evolutionary point of view, that we get the young, strong guys like you to go and guard the tribe at night while the older people in their late twenties could sleep. Well, yes, Spencer, and you kind of mentioned that. You said, isn't it evolutionarily better to get up early and be alert and awake straight away? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, but you need your sleep, mate. I don't know how to do it. It's really hard, especially for people who are still studying at school because it makes it easy for schools to start at a time which is good for primary school kids but not high school kids. And finally, in studies that they've done with high school students, they say, oh, look, we're just doing this experiment, uh, just seeing how you sleep. Just, you just go to sleep here. And normally you go into the really deep sleep after about half an hour. With practically all of the high school students, they went into really deep sleep in about five minutes. They were so sleep deprived. Most people in their school years spend most of their time sleep deprived. And if the schools start later, it's just better. I'm sorry. Society has to change. It does. And then you get into bad patterns. We've got Paul in Wollongong here. Paul, you've got a question about the nervous system. Uh, Yeah, I spilled a bit of water on my foot and uh, immediately I knew I'd done it. I was just wondering how quick is the transmission uh, between the site of pain and the brain? Um, It varies between a couple of kilometres per hour up to about a a couple of hundred. So in some cases, if you want to know whether things are just sort of warm uh, or comfortable or pleasure, that can go quite slowly. But for pain, mate, that pain could be dangerous. And so they tend to be bigger nerves and they go faster. Now, I'm going to have to look this up on my phone. The speed varies from half a metre per second up to about 50. That's what I remember. So going to the app on my phone, blah, 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 units, uh, blah, 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 speed, speed. So metres per second. So half a metre per second is about two kilometres an hour. So it can go from a half to 50. So that's 180 kilometres an hour. How's that measured? Yeah. Oh, okay. The... So in a nerve, you've got this long fibre and it's got yep. gloopy stuff on the inside, but it's got a membrane and the mm-hmm. membrane is maybe 5% of the thickness, you know, the wall thickness, and it's negatively charged on the outside and positively charged on the inside. And what happens oh. is a thing called an action potential. Look it up in Wikipedia. So what happens is the way that... Uh, a transmission of, of information goes along a nerve is that the cell wall depolarizes and then repairs itself and it moves along the nerve. So this wave of depolarization where the negative switches to positive and vice versa comes back again, that moves between, what do I look here, to 118, sorry, 1.8 and 180 kilometres per hour. You can actually measure it running across a nerve and they used to do it with giant nerves from squids because they were really easy to measure. <laughs> Oh. All right. Oh, cool. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Thanks for that. Thank you very much. Bye. We got Dylan in Penrith. Dylan, you've got a question about your heartbeat. Hey, Dr. Carl, Dr. Lucy. I was just wondering, can your heartbeat sync up to the music you're listening to? Mm. Oh, oh, my God. 
uh, number one, it's not impossible, but number two, it's really easy nowadays to do the experiment because many people have got smart watches which monitor their heart rate. So, Dylan, do you have a smart watch? Yes, an Apple Watch. Right. Does it monitor your heart rate? Yes. Ah. Can you monitor your heart rate while you're dancing to BPM music, beats per minute music? can definitely try. Okay. If you do the experiment, we will give you a Triple J fun pack, yada, yada, yada. But you, remember, you've got to write it down, okay? And, and ring back yeah. and let us know what you found. So you need to monitor the heart rate before the music, maybe while you're having a meal, while you're having a little drinky with your friends, while you're having a little talk, and then you, you'd probably be able to get all of this downloaded in one continuous file and notice the time at which you do things and then let us know if there's a change in that direction where the heart rate starts to get closer to uh, your um, minute music. Well, what's the maximum beats that they do? Is it like 120 or 150? Dylan, do you know? I'm not too sure. I feel like it might be 180. Is that out of the valley of possibility? That could be dangerous. The maximum heart rate they reckon is safe is 220 minus your age. So if you're under 40, you can go up to a heart rate of 180 and not be running into various risks. So just remember that the safe heart rate maximum is one is 220 minus your age. So if you fit into that, Dylan, give it a go and let us know what you find. I've just done it now, and it's calculated at 198. Right. Now you've got to get the BPM music going, and you've got to go out to a club. Mm. Okay. I know this is hard work to go to a club for homework, but we have to all make sacrifices. No, it's hard, isn't it? Thanks, Dylan. Thank you, Dr. Dylan. No I feel like the answer soon. would be no, Carl. I just feel, it, like I just feel as if the only way it would just be coincidence it's syncing up to the music if you were doing if you were doing um, exercise around it, i.e., dancing or yeah. But remember, uh, the experiment tells you what's really happening. You can't fool nature, said Richard Feynman. Let's see what really happens. But I'm tending to think it probably doesn't. But let's find out because now we've got the easy technology. Dylan, take it to the club. We've got Lucy on the Northern Rivers. Lucy, Another Bruce, Lucy. What's your question? Hi, hey guys. So my question is, I work as a nurse, and after a shift, after nursing, like you know, people all day that have multiple complex bugs and germs in their bowel. I notice I get home and my feces smells the same as theirs does. I'm wondering, is do, have I acquired the same bugs and germs in my bowel or is my nose playing a trick on me? Let me ask you, is this a gastro ward that you're in at the moment? Um, it has been in the past, yes. And w- are the patients the general or they uh, uh, neuro or, or um, uh, liver or gastro? Yeah, a bit of a mix. I reckon, from what I've been reading, it seems that your gut bacteria can vary in the short term quite enormously. And what that would have to imply is that some of the bacteria would be floating in the air Mm. and then you breathe them in and maybe they get caught in your airway, then you swallow them down and then they end up going into your gut. That would because, make sense. You yeah. reckon? Is that, is that a thing? It's, it's unlikely, but it can happen. The, we have done cases of 
faecal transplants, which you're not doing with your patients, obviously, but um, and, and, and being a nurse, you'd have very good hygiene, so you'd be washing your hands so you wouldn't be going hand mouth, so it'd have to be breathing. And there have been cases of that, so you can be breathing in when you're in, in the bathroom and you're breathing in the, the smell of the feces. There's also some bacteria in the air. Um, uh, go onto my TikTok account and read about the world's first fartograph. So, mm-hmm. and, and I have been reading that the gut bacteria do change or can change very quickly. So the interesting thing would be to monitor it and then see what happens when you go on holidays for a couple of weeks or you yes, move to a different I, sort of ward, ward like uh, an eye ward or a neuro ward. That's very interesting. Thanks for answering my question. Are there ever yeah. instances where you don't feel like it's happening, Lucy? Mm-hmm. When I'm not at work, like Dr. Carl says, like if I take some leave, yeah. Mm, okay. Wow. Mm. Now, now, remember, you've got to write it down and you've got to come up with some kind of smell scale and your diet's got to be pretty well regular so you're not oscillating between the squirts and lumps and having just a sort of regular bowel motions. Uh, look up the Bristol scale if you want on Wikipedia. Oh, I don't okay. know. Lucy, yeah, like you so said much. as well in your message, like, is my nose playing tricks on me? I feel like mm. I used to babysit my next to a neighbour who was a, a young infant, like a baby pretty much, and I would feel this same thing loose like when i went to the toilet i was like oh my god it smells like baby poo yeah i've noticed that too when i've been changing a baby's nappy for example so yeah interesting oh my gosh okay well lucy you're another one who has homework next time you spend an extended period of time away from work let us know (laughs) okay i will all right lee texting and saying i've noticed when you smell bad farts my farts do smell the same is it all? Is it, wow. sympath- is it sympathetic smelling, Carl? That's a trouble. You need an independent smellometer, and we've actually just one, invented one of those. I think I mentioned to you the woman who can smell Parkinson's disease 14 years early. Yeah, you did a series on this as well. Yeah, so we have, because there's only one of her, and there are millions of people with undiagnosed Parkinson's disease, we've started coming up with kind of electronic noses. So they will become a technology more readily available in the future and then we can start having objective or independent assessment of smells rather than just the human brain, which is so easily fooled. Wow, it's crazy. We've got Mick in a tonga here. Mick, I've been wondering this. We all wonder this coming into the season. What do you want to know? Yeah, Doc, I was wondering, why does your nose seem to run more when it's very cold in the morning? When it's very cold, the air coming out of your lungs will cool down suddenly. So you're breathing in air. Let's start with the process. You're breathing in cold air, and it's relatively low humidity, maybe 20 30%. And then it enters your nose. By the time it gets to the back of your throat, it should be at around 100% humidity and up to 37 degrees C. So you don't feel something weird in your lungs. It goes into your lungs. Oxygen's taken out. 4% oxygen's taken out. 4% carbon dioxide is added in. It then comes out still at 100% humidity and 37 degrees C, and bang, it hits the cold morning air. Are, are you a tradie, Dr. Nick? You know, no, early right. starts? Yeah, early starts, yep. Yeah, okay. So you'd be out there, uh, in some cases, we head into winter before the sun rises, getting to the job site, and so it might be 8 degrees or 5 degrees or something, and suddenly this 37-degree air loaded with water hits the outside air, 
and it cools down. And it cools down in your nose on the way out and then it condenses. The water droplets begin to condense there and then you get the, this runny nose simply because of that sudden drop in temperature. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. So the water vapour is just condensing because it's so cold. And you can see that if you breathe out with, through your mouth, you can suddenly see your breath, which is normally invisible. You can then see little tiny water droplets in the air, that mist. In this case, the mist is happening inside your nose. The little droplets come together to make bigger droplets, maybe even make drops, and then you get a runny nose. Uh-huh. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mick. Thank you, Dr. Thank you for being a tradie. Okay. The sympathetic smelling is going down. 0439 <laughs> Chris, you said, I've been trying to call in about this. My dogs affect my farts. There is no doubt unless their odour is stuck in my nose when I smell my own. Tegan from Tokemall, you said, I used to live on the coast and when there was low tide seaweed smells, our farts would smell exactly the same Annabelle in Bathurst, kind of a different take, saying if I smell really bad B.O., I feel like I'm smelling it everywhere. When smell's feeling like they're getting trapped in your nose, Carl. Smell, okay, now let's talk about smell. Every living creature has smell and that goes for bacteria. In this case, what they're doing is they're sensing chemicals in the environment. This is just a single cell. And if it senses that it might kill it, it moves away if it can, and if it senses that it's food, it'll head towards it. So sense, sense of smell is really, really basic, you know, much more important than the sense of compassion, the ability to play chess or mm. tennis. And then as we move into uh, animals like us, we have the sense of smell in our very primitive so-called reptilian brain and it links across to so many things. So the sense of smell, according to Marcel Proust in his Days of Future Past or whatever it is, that seven-volume series, he talks about smelling a Madeleine cake and then as he smells it, suddenly in front of him like a film set arising out of the ground, he can see the village where he would walk with her to the cake shop to buy that. So the sense of smell is incredibly married into everything, which means it can be tricked. So uh, I'm reckoning that that it is possible that if the dog farts, you might smell your own farts as being smelling like a dog or you could be tricked at a higher level. And that's where we need the impartial, objective, scientific, electronic nose to tell if you're really smelling it or whether you've been tricked because smell is just intricately wired into who you are. We're going to get to one last question before we take a song. Joshua in Newey... You're, you're the messenger this morning. Your kid wants to know something. What's going on? Yeah, since our doctors are uh, just wondering, um, he's in kindergarten right now, so I'm calling on his behalf. Yeah. Uh, he asked me what would happen to a helicopter in space. And I explained to him that, you know, internal combustion engines wouldn't work without oxygen. But, uh, <laughs> How did yeah, that go over? <laughs> bit of a noodle scratcher. Oh, well, yeah, we, that, was a, that was another discussion. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I told him I'd, um, I'd give you a call and see, okay. what, see what you had to say. Think about a totally illegal act, which is driving down the road at high speed on the highway between Newcastle and anywhere because you've got good highways in each direction, and you yeah. wind down the window, which is legal, and you put your hand out, which is illegal. Okay, and then you angle your hand so your fingers are higher than the base of your hand and than your wrist, and your hand will lift mm-hmm. up. That's what happens to an aeroplane wing when it takes off, and it happens to a propeller, uh, a rotor blade on a helicopter. They angle up so right. that they bite into the wind. The wind 
they're creating by going forward, the wind hits the bottom of the propeller blade, the wind goes down, then Newton's third law of action-reaction kicks in. If the wind, if the air which has mass goes down, the rotor goes up and you get lift. There is not enough air in space for a helicopter to work. However, it is surprising, get your child to look at the videos of the helicopter we have running on Mars. Now, the air there is less than 1% of the thickness of ours. It's about 160, one over 160. So there's very few air molecules up there, 160 times fewer air molecules per cubic metre. But by cleverly running the blades faster and doing a few other tricks, they actually get the helicopter to fly on Mars, which I didn't think they could do, but they could do it. And it's been going yeah, for months. Yeah, we've actually been watching that. it's a great success. Yeah. So you need some air, but in space... No air, can't fly, but divert him. And one of the top scientists uh, is working on the Perseverance is an Australian, and so he's managed to convince the crew to call the, that he works with uh, call, to do the Australian thing of shortening the name down to Percy. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. So would the, would the rotor and the body spinning, would, that, like, would, that, would they spin against each other? Well, you could get the top rotor to spin yep. with an electric battery, but it would there be no air molecules for it to bite into? And then you've got the back tail rotor, which stops the whole body of the helicopter spinning in the opposite direction. And right. that would, uh, and it wouldn't have any air to bite into, so the body of the helicopter would start spinning in the opposite direction. It'd be messy. Right, so the whole thing would just start spinning around on multiple axes and <laughs> completely uh, screw over the pilot. Yeah, but let him see the show him the videos of the uh, helicopter on yeah, Mars. Yeah, yeah, we. I think that might have actually spurred the question. We were watching the the rover and the and the, the little helicopter scooting around. It's it's pretty cool. Oh, your son's so clever, or your child. Remember, it's not the answer that gets you the Nobel Prize. It's the question. Thanks, Josh. Yep. <laughs> Thank you very much, doctors. We got Betty from Sydney. Betty, how you doing? What do you want to ask Carl? Hey, Doctor Lucy and Doctor Carl. My question is about gravity. If there was a hole through the earth and I jumped in, would I fall through to the other side or would I stop in the middle? Ah, the answer is, we used to think it was 42, but now the answer is 38. Let me start. So firstly, you want to drill a hole from the North Pole to the South Pole because it gets complicated if you try to do it off the spin axis. You know how the earth spins, Dr. Betty, on the North-South spin axis, the North Poles? Yes. Okay. So the second thing is that the deepest hole we've ever drilled is a lousy 12 kilometres. But let's just pretend we can go all the way down. Um, By the way, when you get to the centre of the earth, the temperature is hotter than the surface of the sun. So any of the materials we have would just be damaged. Let's pretend we've got some sort of super material that we haven't invented yet. So you've got a, a, a wall so you can go all the way through. And then the other thing is... You've got to remove the air. If you, by the time you get about 90 kilometres of air all piled on top of each other instead of our eight kilometres, by the time you get to 90 kilometres, the air is so dense that it squashes on itself and begins to turn into a liquid. So you've got to have a vacuum. Okay, so now you've got yourself a vacuum hole uh, surrounded by some incredible material called unobtainium and it holds it empty and you're wearing a spacesuit so you don't worry about the lack of air and then you jump in. At the moment you jump in, in front of you is the whole planet 
and the whole planet starts sucking on you with its gravity and you start accelerating. And you get faster and faster as you go towards the centre um, and you reach, and this is not a coincidence, the same speed as the International Space Station, seven kilometres a second. Wow. The same wow. speed. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. If you do the physics, if you do physics, you'll, get, you'll understand why. And now at this stage, you're right in the middle. Now on one hand, you've got half the Earth in front of you and it's pulling. But then, on the other hand, you've got half the Earth behind you and it's trying to slow you down and it will slow... But, but you've got this velocity of 7 kilometres a second, 28,000 kilometres an hour. So you keep going and as you keep on going, you've now got more of the Earth behind you until you get to the other side of the Earth and you just go to the surface and then come back again. So you go backwards and forwards and we used to think that the time taken for this journey was 42 minutes. We've recalculated thanks to a university student and uh, in Canada, I think, and now we think it's 38 minutes and you just oscillate backwards and forwards. But here's another really weird thing. You ready for the really weird thing, Dr. Betty? Yeah. Okay. So it's 38 minutes from North Pole to South Pole. Or if you ignore the spinning of the Earth thing, it's 38 minutes from Sydney to Newcastle. Sydney to Perth, Sydney to London, Sydney to Shanghai, Sydney to Taiwan, Sydney, anywhere to anywhere in a straight line through the earth is the same time. Isn't that weird? Wow. Wow. Now, I've written a a story on this, so just type up ABC, Dr. Carl, and hold through the earth, and you'll find the answer there. Any other questions, Dr. Betty? Thank you, Dr. Carl. Thank you, Dr. Betty. Oh, by the way, are you at school? Um, No, not today. Okay, but do you normally go to school or you, you pass yeah. school? Yeah. Okay, go to the Dr. Carl website, drcarl.com, and make an appointment. Uh, for, and I'll do a free science Q&A with your class on a Wednesday afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Betty. Betty, we love you. All right, we've got Sherry in Melbourne. Sherry, Dr. you've Sherry. noticed something when you're cooking your fruit toast. What's going on? Hi, Dr. Carl. I was just um, wondering why fruit toast cooks way quicker than plain white bread. I've noticed that. Have you noticed that, Dr. Lucy? No, I haven't. <laughs> I don't like sultanas or fruit or fruit toast. Ah, yeah. so you're not into fusion, man. No, I'm not doing <laughs> you're it. You're straight, man. <laughs> okay, uh, so what happens is you end up with an area of browning. Tell me if I'm right on this show from memory. You end up with an area around each individual raisin or sultana where it's really brown. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, I think, but I'm not sure the following is happening, but I'm not sure. I think that the water in the raisin, picks up the heat really well and then re-radiates it out. I, that's the best I can come up with. I've thought it for a long time. As I say, I don't like it. If somebody can give us a better answer, next week we're running out of time. But, Sherry, keep watching this space. I'm yes. kind of thinking my answer's not very good. It needs to be solved. <laughs> we'll get an answer for you. I like that. But you're not wrong, Perfect. Sherry. Thank you. If you leave it in, for it goes, it goes rock hard to a crisp. Let's figure it out. We've got Tanya in Dr. WA. Tanya. Tanya. I know this. What's, what's your question? Yeah, hi. Um, I've got a terrible cough at the moment and I'm coughing all day long. But when I'm asleep, I don't appear to be coughing. So what happens when you're asleep? Um, you have reflexes that kick in to let you get a good night's sleep. But you can get woken up from sleep by coughing. And that is a sign in some cases of asthma. Um, 
so that, that's the best answer I've got. That as part of the sleep, a whole lot of reflexes, uh, uh, you know, ramp down. And in fact, when you're dreaming, your body is paralysed. And but it is a good thing to cough sometimes, but to get rid of stuff that's in your lungs. But sometimes you're coughing only because you're already irritated, and by the act of coughing, you just make it worse, which sets you on a terrible positive feedback loop. Um, is it okay. possible? How, how long have you been coughing for? Oh, a couple of weeks now. It's driving me mad. Have you seen your GP? It is possible that you could have whooping cough. Oh, okay. Because what happens is everybody used to be vaccinated against whooping cough and there was just none, but then the uh, herd vaccination levels dropped and so adults have had it. Have you you had the the coughing so bad that you vomit? No, no. no. That that happened to my adult daughter and she had it for three months and she would, most of that three months she was vomiting at least once a day. Mm. So just, the doctor can check you out and then you can go down a different pathway. But definitely see a GP. And I've I've got maybe an um, idea about the raisin toast. Oh, thank you, yes. Is it the sugars in the Mm. raisins that are causing it to... Burn. Tanya, oh, you are not brilliant. the first. So many people texting in <laughs> saying retoast got to be the high sugar content and the caramelising. Yeah. Mitch from Cairns so. noting the cinnamon. Yeah. But, yeah, a lot of people saying mm. the sugar. Hey, I'm yeah. going to get this straight. Are you telling me that there is extra sugar in the bread in the dough that is turned into raisin toast as compared to the dough that's turned into regular bread? I don't know the answer to that, but I would say raisins themselves would have sugar in them. Ah, but is there extra sugar added into the dough as part of the making of raisin bread? Yeah, someone's saying fruit toast is full of sugar. More than white bread, sugar is what Uh burns quickly. You learn something every day. Oh, my God, thank you so much, beloved audience. Thanks, Tanya. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. No worries, thanks. And we're going to end here with James in Yamba. James, you got a question about space as well. Yeah, hey guys. Um, my question just is, um, like our, you know, fellow astronauts, do they get, or could they get as sunburnt as we can on Earth? Um, and what do they do to avoid that? Um, if they were exposed with their naked skin to space, they would get a much higher dose of UV. Down here on the ground, UV, ultraviolet, is blocked by the atmosphere and there's only a couple of percent. In space, it's 10 to 15%. So they would, if exposed with their naked skin to space, get sunburned so much more quickly. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Thanks, James. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl and a big thank you to anyone who likes, rates, reviews, follows the podcast. We see you. JJ Dejug, you sent us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and you said, I love this show even though I've only listened to a few episodes, but mum puts it on in the car so I'm familiar with the program and I already love it and it is so amazing and cool. Thank you so much. I see the heart eyes. I see the sunglass emoji eyes. Thank you. I'm Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Lou Hill and we'll have more for you next week. See ya. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack podcast, it's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.